Hello everyone and welcome to this week's podcast, Motos and Friends. We're brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In our first segment this week, Nick DeSena tells us about his recent comparison test between Kawasaki's all-new ZX4RR and Yamaha's brilliant YZF-R7. He rode both bikes at the streets of Willow Springs, and although they're actually very similar in some ways, they are, of course, very different machines in others. In our product snippet this week, I chat with TJ Adams about the new Cortec Light Gloves. Essentially, Cortec has utilized a new type of material that is both super thin, yet it's also tough, and it's perfectly suited to lightweight riding gloves. In our second segment, TJ Adams has a fun chat with an influencer that she recently met on the Kawasaki Eliminator launch in California. Aya Lolwut on Instagram is a motorcycle enthusiast through and through. Aya is a software engineer for a healthcare provider, and she also models, sometimes with a motorcycle, sometimes without. Aya is a busy lady and seems to split her time between riding, modeling, riding, working, and apparently riding some more. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The 2023 Kawasaki Ninja ZX4RR and the Yamaha YZF-R7. And when you look at these two motorcycles on paper, you start to see that there's a ton of similarities. Um, you know, just judging by their spec sheets alone, you'll see that they have the same claimed wet weight. Um, you know, the geometry numbers are pretty similar. You start seeing a lot of commonalities between the two just in general. And despite the fact that one is a four cylinder and the other one is a parallel twin, and they do have a you know 289 cc disparity between them, they really do start to harmonize when they're sitting next to each other. And that sort of speaks to the broader changing of the landscape when it comes to middleweight sport motorcycles in general. Um, you know, with more stringent emissions, manufacturers are trying to look into other directions. And there's probably other factors for that as well regarding, you know, price of current generation leader bikes and things of that nature, and just bringing things that arguably are a bit more affordable to the market to, we'll say, reinvigorate a younger audience. And that's what, you know, the YZF-R7 is really doing and it's it's reshaped Yamaha's sport lineup in the sense that it's effectively replaced the YZF-R6, although it's not a replacement, a direct replacement in terms of performance, riding experience and such and so forth. The YZF-R7 is a lot more street friendly because it's a parallel twin engine, which offers a lot more torque than you know your average inline four cylinder engine of any displacement really. Um, and with the R6, you know, it was your classic inline four. So didn't offer a lot of torque, you know, fully committed super sport riding position, those things together, you know, that, that, that sort of explains the, the, we'll say downward trend of middleweight super sport, classic middleweight super sports in general for street use um, because they are high performance machines and they're excellent on the racetrack. But if we're dead honest about street use, probably not the greatest. Now, 
the ZX4R comes in with a different mentality. Um, you know, it's not as committed in terms of its riding position as, say, a traditional uh, inline four-cylinder sport bike. But there's a lot to talk about here. And when you really boil it all down, these things start to stack up against each other pretty pretty nicely. Now, we did have to do something uh, pretty, pretty significant for these bikes. Uh, as our readers and listeners know, the ZX4RR, in regards to the U.S. spec, or sorry, North American spec model, so that includes Canada, um, it is detuned pretty significantly to, to meet EPA noise compliance. So that means it stops making power at 11,500 RPM. Despite revving out to, in stock form, 15,100 RPM. Now, it's wow. really not how anyone wanted to ride this bike. It's not how the people wanted to see it. And it is a great indignity thrust upon the motorcycle by the powers that be. <laughs> it needed to be rectified. Um, to do that, we, we hit up Chuck Graves of Graves Motorsports, who just so happened to develop uh, tunes for both the ZX4RR and the R7. So we just reflashed each motorcycle. And that definitely had had some positive impact. You know, for the Kawasaki, we dynoed it post-flash. Um, we changed nothing else. And that allowed the, the engine to, to create 68.7 horsepower at 15,000 RPM and 24.9 foot-pounds of torque at 12,200 RPM on the dyno. Now, dynos are kind of fungible, so give or take, you know, a couple points here and there, depending on where you live and your fuel and yada, 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 and the dyno, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. The point is the Kawasaki basically gained about 20-ish odd horsepower compared to stock. And now we're up to snuff with the rest of the world in terms of what they're going to be riding um, when they go and buy a ZX4R, because this really only applies to North America. Now we also, just to keep things on an even keel, we also flashed the R7, and there was really no performance benefit there. It pumped out a pretty familiar 64.4 horsepower at 8,700 RPM and 44.6 foot-pounds of torque at 6,400 RPM. Again, these are numbers that we measured at the rear wheel. So it says pretty much two things. The Kawasaki is being limited pretty aggressively on... The electronic side as in it's just not allowing the throttle bodies to open um while whereas the the cp2 engine that we know from the long-standing mt07 platform still passes emissions with flying colors and if you want to go beyond that in terms of performance gains then you're going to have to start reaching into the goodie bag for performance upgrades like full exhaust systems velocity stacks airbox modifications uh and then you know you can just go down that rabbit hole in terms of engine work as well. Now, the thing is, Chuck Graves and Graves Motorsports and plenty of other tuners offer all of those go-fast parts, so it's not really a big deal. If you want to take that route, go ahead and do it. But this also brings up the disclaimer that we have to mention. Flashing your motorcycle, uh, technically, and depending on what you're doing, no longer makes it an EPA-compliant or street-legal motorcycle. Therefore, you can be subject to fines and penalties, and in some cases, tuners can also be liable for 
you know, fines and penalties. Uh, the EPA is cracking down on performance tuners that that facilitate these things and and so on and so forth. Um, so there's that. Graves Motorsports does not produce these flashes for street use, and it is clear that this is used on closed courses only. And that really gets to the crux of our track only test for these two bikes, because we took them to Streets of Willow, uh, the 1.6 mile racetrack that's adjacent to Willow Springs uh, International Raceway. Still find that a hilarious name. Um, <laughs> Considering it's out in the middle of the Mojave Desert, there isn't a spring in sight. <laughs> the only thing world class about Willow Springs is its toilets. Um, <laughs> that said, Streets of Willow is... They just repaved it, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, it's about 95% repaved. Right. And it's excellent, except for the skid pad. They didn't repave that for whatever reason and it's still like terrible terrible asphalt but the rest of the track is absolutely beautiful but i will throw sh like an aggressive amount of shade at um the skid pad because it it truly sucks but that's yeah, it but when, but when you're riding the track you're only on the skid pad for a what is it probably like 50 meters or something maybe yeah but it feels like you know four years so <laughs> it does it, it does yeah, it's just, to me, it's like, why would you repave that? And it's a corner, so you've got to be a bit careful going around there. Yeah, it, you know, it, it, not to belabor the point, but, you know, the reason I make the comments I do about Willow Springs is because of its legacy. And it's a super important racetrack to Southern California and American road racing in general. But we have to be honest here. Let's just not mince words. Uh, Big Willow is not in a great state and although it is repaved apparently and they just repaved it didn't they yeah eh, okay well we'll see we'll see about that i i don't have personal experience okay well they did they did repave it so they're making some effort so that's good well getting back to streets of willow okay so nicely repaved really nice track nice you know technical track with a sort of sketchy skid pad area so to keep your wits about you all right yeah yeah, and the skid pad isn't 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 really too bad. So you know, just kind of moving forward off that. But okay, so those are the numbers you're looking at. Um, you know, basically 68, 68 horsepower and twenty four foot or sorry twenty four point nine, so twenty five foot pounds of torque for the Cowie, and the Yamaha puts out sixty four horsepower and forty four foot pounds of torque. So really, that's you know, it's almost double the amount of the torque when you compare it to the Kawasaki. And for an inline four. Uh, cylinder engine it's it's kind of what we expected right because that configuration isn't known to just be you know torque centric it it's true you know single greatest it's true single greatest strength is going to be its top end ability and that's where things really kind of work out for the Kawasaki. It wants you to spin it up. It makes you work for it. And there's there's an intensity to all of that because you can hear the thing revving out now that we have a higher red line due to that that Graves tuning goes up to about 16,000 RPM or so. So it just feels fun and exciting and just the the experience of 
of really getting into the throttle of a bike and, and being able to control it too. So you have a lot going on in that in that capacity. That said, it's still tractable. It still builds its power nicely. And I think a lot of riders from a lot of different skill levels can jump on this bike and enjoy it. Um, now, is it perfect for an absolute beginner? I would say no, just based on price alone. Um, the performance isn't too crazy. I think someone could easily build into that and figure it out. But, you know, I'd say start with a Ninja 400 or, you know, something else equivalently sized and, and value as well, just so you, you don't have to take that plunge. You know, that said, the, the inline four engine is, is that classic inline four personality. It's revy. And, you know, you have to keep the RPM to, to get any sort of power out of it. And to me, that's just kind of the joy of it. So, it's a stark comparison when you go over to the Yamaha's CP2 engine. That's the cross-plane. Uh, two-cylinder. Yeah, two-cylinder engine. So I think sounds really good. And it sounded, you know, good for years. I, I When these things have full systems on them, I think they they just sound awesome. You know, they, they actually sound a lot burlier and, and, and a lot more menacing than they actually are. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> but... And that's part of its charm as, as well. You know, it it has more torque. It it has more rumble to it. You know, it's not as smooth as an inline four engine, and it just feels a bit more burly. That's kind of the word I would use to describe it. Now, in the Titan technical, you know, racetrack situation, that torque is is a pretty big advantage because you're able to get off the corner nice and easy, and you can lean into that engine, and it's feeding that power to the rider in a very tractable fashion. You don't really have to work for it. The lap sort of comes to you. And what's interesting is, you know, despite this being a public track day, you know, these bikes lapped within about a second of each other at all times. Didn't matter who was riding it. Wow. They're about a second within each other. And I really think that highlights the, the sort of emotional response and mentality that either of these engines tease out of a rider with the inline four it is more intense right it it sort of demands that you crack the whip and get after it and so you're always a little bit more focused on that bike i'll say whereas the the parallel twin engine it has more torque it is more forgiving you can go into a corner maybe a gear too tall and you'll still have plenty of good drive to come out of it now, the flip side of that, too, is that it has a lot more engine braking, so you're able to slow the bike, you know, without using the brakes as aggressively, and you can just sort of ride it in a little bit more flowy, kind of old-school manner. And that said, you know, they're only within a second of each other, so, you know, all things being equal, it's not that crazy, right? Um, you know, I think with clear track, both bikes could have gone faster, and you know, we would have seen what happened there, but overall that's kind of where you're at. Now, in terms of shifting and other hard parts, you know, they both have six speed gearboxes, little slipper clutches, you know, they're all super light clutches. That's all cool. The Kawasaki being the new kid on the block has more technology behind it. It has adjustable traction control. It has ABS um, that is non-adjustable. Same as the Yamaha. The Yamaha does not have any rider aids of 
of that kind, like track control. It does have ABS, non-adjustable as well. And uh, the Kawasaki gets an up-down quick shifter. Works pretty, pretty well in both directions. I think you could improve the timing just a little bit, you know, for those really hardcore track dudes. But other than that, I think it's fine. Um, and then when you compare that to the Yamaha that has an up only quick shifter and it is an optional accessory for $200, that's where the Yamaha's age starts to show because we're, we're still using a cable actuated throttle, which means it cannot accept an auto blipper feature. And to do that, you need a ride by wire system so that the ECU can tell the ride, ride by wire unit to open the throttle valves and auto blip. Um, so yeah, you know, in that sense, the Yamaha's gearbox feels a tad bit notchier. It's not bad, but it does feel a tad bit notchier on that, that upshift. And, you know, it's, it's missing an auto blipper. So that's kind of a glaring emission between the two. Um, so that's sort of the engines in a nutshell. It, it's, it's really interesting because it, it sort of highlights the differences between these bikes. And as we keep going down the line, it's just the, they sit at opposite ends of the spectrum, despite the fact that their spec sheets are so close. So yeah, yeah, pretty interesting stuff on the engine department. It sounds as though the Yamaha is a little easier to ride, a little more uh, perhaps user-friendly. I don't know if that's the right expression, but obviously you've got on a on a track like Street to Willow, which is pretty tight and technical, the, the Screamer, zx you know kawasaki is going to it's not going to have too many places where it can really stretch its legs um whereas the torque of the yamaha is gonna gonna make it easier to ride i would have thought is that a fair statement or yeah yeah the the yamaha is definitely more forgiving and like we okay. mentioned before it, it allows the lap to come to you a bit easier okay so you know there's only maybe one true straightaway at Streets of Willow, and then you have kind of the back straight. It's kind of short. So the the Kawasaki can only truly dig into that that slightly superior top end power. Right. Kind of at the bitter end as well. That said, you know, like I mentioned before, the Kawasaki wants someone of that mentality that that wants to sort of, you know, really wring the throttle's neck. And it it forces you to ride it that way. And it, that's not a bad thing either, because it does, you know, lull you into that. No, that's actually me. I just, uh, there's nothing I like more than a four-cylinder screamer motor. I mean, I just love it. Yeah, and it really just depends. So, you know, luckily, most motorcyclists kind of have that thrill-seeking streak in them. So I don't think too many people <laughs> will have an issue with that. If we're talking about 1000s, that's where the conversation can change because then you're just dealing with dramatically more power and it just becomes more and more intimidating. And in that sense, a, a twin engine motorcycle becomes even more appealing because the aspects that we've talked about here with the, the Yamaha being the easier motorcycle to ride, it has more torque, et cetera, et cetera. Those aspects get amplified as it keeps growing in size too. Now, it also becomes more intimidating because now you have more torque, more power, blah, 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 blah. Right. So these things become amplified um, for better or worse for either engine. But we're talking about 
you know, a 689cc and a 399cc engine. So, you know, things are pretty casual. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, trade between these bikes and the racetrack, because like you said, there's not a whole lot of areas on that racetrack where the, where the, the Kawasaki can start running away with it. That said, you're already kind of pinned up there and in, in the high RPM range constantly. Um, whereas the Yamaha, you just got all that good torque to, you know, pull you through things. And that really, really helps. So yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely some interesting contrasts there. Um, sure. But yeah. Yeah. How about the, uh, the chassis and the handling? I'm yeah. So curious. they're both, uh, steel trellis frames. Um, the Kawasaki does use its sort of heavier, uh, steel swing arm. Um, and, and they, they, again, they trade off in aspects here with the Kawasaki, you have the Showa, uh, is that single function fork, um, up front, the only adjustability you have is preload. Now with the Yamaha, you do have a fully adjustable fork and then going to the shock of the Kawasaki that is fully adjustable versus the shock of the Yamaha that is preload adjustable and rebound damping only. So you can sort of see how things are kind of equalizing in terms of what they're missing and what they, what they have. We don't have fully adjustable suspension at either end of each bike, arguably, or not arguably, but empirically the Kawasaki has less adjustment. Uh, that said, there's kind of a, a handful of other things in play here. The, the geometry is pretty relative. Um, the Kawasaki has a slightly tighter rake and longer trails, shorter wheelbase, you know, some narrower uh, tire sizes. And all that sort of spells to a bike that's just slightly more maneuverable than the Yamaha. And I think that really has to do with its overall physical size. Like it just feels a bit more compact and more indicative of a bike like that. Now the Yamaha tends to feel a bit more stout and again, it has a slightly longer rake, has a slightly longer wheelbase, and it also uses a larger rear rear tire. Um, for reference, the Kawasaki uses a 160-60 rear. The Yamaha uses a 180-55 rear. They both have the same front, 120-70. So, you know, you can okay. basically use any tire on the market because everyone has that size. Uh, we actually swapped to Dunlop Sportmax Q5s for a couple of reasons. One, it's a track day tire. And two, Dunlop is one of the few brands that actually offers OE sizes for both of these bikes. If we went with another brand, we would have had to start kind of fudging the numbers a little bit, and we didn't want to deviate too much from OE. Basically, we just wanted extra grip with less hassle. Um, right. There are a couple brands that uh, Bridgestone uses, uh, these these tire sizes for their dot racing tire but we would have had to use slicks etc etc would have added some complications um at any rate moving on um you know the basically what you're looking at is two bikes that handle relatively similarly they're within the ballpark of each other but the kawasaki ends up being a little bit more planted on the front in terms of the way it actuates through the fork it just team 
tends to be a bit more controlled, despite the fact that you have a fully adjustable fork on a Yamaha, even with really cranking all that damping down and trying to tighten it up. We have to remember, and we shouldn't really hold it against them, that these two bikes are primarily designed for the street. Although they are sport bikes, they are super sport bikes in some capacity. They are not hardcore track bikes by definition, sure. right? Sure. So they're sprung and damped on the lighter side. For me at my weight, skill level, you know, all things being equal, I would pretty much immediately up the spring rates and then probably talk about some fork oil changes, or not fork oil, but just, yeah, and oil viscosity changes. And that'd be a really cheap stopgap before really diving into that, that suspension and just, you know, going to a cartridge fork for each bike, replacing the shock, blah, 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 blah. You can do a lot with changing those spring rates because they're just too light for me right. and ostensibly a great portion of the American riding audience because we're just heavier than uh, Japanese testers by a significant margin. So, so, so the suspension definitely needed stiffening up a bit then. Yeah, it could. But I, what I want to make clear is that it's not terrible. Um, okay. We, we still lapped at a pretty good pace and, you know, things were, were definitely, definitely quick and fun. That said, I could use some more support in the front and the rear on either motorcycle. Um, and that just comes down to raw spring rates. The other thing is that, you know, like I mentioned before, the fork on the Kawasaki, I think it's just a little bit more, more stable in the way that it goes through the stroke and its damping rates are just a little bit more controlled. Um, despite the fact that it, they have no adjustment, it's just, it's just, it is what it is. Um, for whatever reason, I, I tended to like the front end feel of the Kawasaki a bit more. And that's interesting because as we go into the riding positions, again, huge change between them. Yeah, the uh, the Kawasaki probably has a little bit more weight over the front on it. And, and uh, as I think you're about to tell us, probably partly because of the riding position. The R7 is a lot more upright riding position. So, you know, you're going to feel a little more connected to the front end. No, it's actually the other way around. Um, oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. All right, tell me yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. So the Cowie has that traditional Japanese old school riding position. You're sort of sat in the chassis, tucked in behind the fuel tank. And the, you know, the 400cc engine isn't exactly the biggest package in the world. So it's not, not comparable to a ZX6R or 10R. It's not super wide, but you're still tucked in nicely behind that gas tank. And you got some really good real estate to latch onto when you're cornering. They also opt for sort of faux clip-on handlebars that are more like riser clip-ons. Uh, so you're propped up a little bit more. If you look at the action photos, you can just sort of see that I'm kind of locked in. I'm not super aggressive, definitely in a sporty riding position, but it's not too demanding. I think that that riding position would translate pretty decently on the road um, because it's just a few shades more aggressive than a Ninja 400, for example. Uh, on the lower end, you have uh, rear sets that definitely feel more spacious in comparison to the Yamaha. And overall, it's just a pretty comfy riding position. The sort of trade-off there is that I definitely was grinding my toe sliders, grinding not just peg feelers, but the actual 
foot pegs themselves. So you get less ground clearance and that's what you trade off when you, you know, add more leg room basically. And, you know, were I to own this bike and race it or, you know, turn it into a full track day bike, I'd definitely invest in some rear sets and just raise those up a, a sniff. Um, not talking a lot, just, you know, a little bit. Um, whereas the Yamaha really leans into that, that actual super sport riding position. And I think that's important for Yamaha because remember this thing is replacing the R6. So they want to give something that's relative to that riding experience. It uses, you know, low mounted clip on handlebars. So you have a little bit more weight distributed over the front of the motorcycle, gives you a little bit more feedback out of that front end. But like we mentioned before, the fork just isn't quite as strong. They're like, you know, definitely in the same conversation, but they're not quite there. And, um, you know, I can actually fit on the Yamaha. I can tuck in behind the bubble, whereas the ZX4RR, I'm kind of thinking thin thoughts. And if we think about the Ninja 400, the ZX4RR, the ZX6R, Ninja 650, just a lot of the Kawasaki seating positions tend to be a little bit more compact, not uncomfortable, but they definitely give the sense that the bike is perhaps smaller than it is. And encourages that idea of agility that said it makes it a little bit more difficult to actually tuck in and really really get behind the bubble whereas the r6 that's it feels like a full-size bike because you know it's at like nine tenths scale um whereas the the cowie is a little bit smaller um so i can actually fit on the yamaha pretty well um but yeah yeah, it's interesting. So it, it, it does change how you you sort of perceive the chassis feedback. Um, you know, the seating position does does play a role in that. And I think that's that's what we're we're sort of alluding to with a lot of this conversation. Um, you know, despite the fact that I think the front end is a little bit better on the Kawasaki, you can get better feedback out of the Yamaha when you're kind of that high lean. Um, and you can feel traction loss and stuff like that uh, to a little bit better degree. That said, the Kawasaki did go faster in lap time. So, you know, not to just give you two things and then make you figure them out for yourselves, but that's what I'm doing. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So in terms of, in terms of outright cost, um, what are we looking at here? Yeah, so the 2023 bikes, and just so this doesn't confuse anyone right out of the gate, Kawasaki has released its 2024 pricing, which is featured on their website now. So if you go to Kawasaki's website, that's what you're going to see, which is $400 higher than the prices we're talking about. However, we're still in 23. This test happened in 23. We're going to talk about 23 pricing. So the 23 Kawasaki Ninja ZX4RR is $9,699. The 2023 Yamaha YZF-R7 at base price is $9,199 in the performance white color that is seen on our website. Uh, usually we would call the Yamaha blue, but in this case it is white, which was interesting to shoot photos of. Forgot how hard it is to shoot white bikes. Um, now, as tested, because we had that up only quick shifter on the Yamaha, 
$9,399. So the price disparity gets a little bit closer there. With the Kawasaki, you get those extra features that I mentioned earlier. You get adjustable traction control. You get a TFT display, a full color TFT display compared to the Yamaha's basic LCD screen. Feels a bit antiquated at this point. You also get, um, I, I would argue, just better fit and finish all around. And given that the Kawasaki is a newer motorcycle overall, it had time to look at the rest of the market and go, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're going to do that and that and that. And that's kind of the, the natural progression you really want to see from any manufacturer when they release a new motorcycle is you want to see them looking at the rest of the market and then taking a step forward. So Kawasaki definitely did that. Um, the YZFR7 has been on the market for a few years now. And its base platform is a little bit older. So it does not have that auto blip feature. Okay. It, it does not have full color TFT display, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, fit and finish is more representative of a bike that's a few years older than, than the Kawasaki. Okay. Fair play. But on its merits, it still holds up pretty well. Um, yeah. And then, you know, kind of talking about uh, things like braking, for example. Um, you know, the, the Yamaha definitely colors the conversation more positively because it comes with a Brembo master cylinder, you know, you have, um, radial mounted, you know, calipers on each bike, you know, their four piston calipers, you know, they look like the authentic, you know, you know, the real McCoy. And it's interesting because again, stark contrast with the Yamaha, you get a firmer, I would argue more confidence inducing bite from the lever. The problem is you get less feel. Whereas the Kawasaki, bit squishier the entire time. However, better, in, in my opinion, better feel and better braking power overall, which usually that doesn't track, right? You're like kind of squishy brakes. You're like, wait, that, how do they work better? I can't explain it. They just do. So, um, <laughs> And that's despite the fact that the Kawasaki uses an old school radial or sorry, old school axial Nissan master cylinder. It's, you know, not as attractive as the Brembo unit. Um, so well, that, that's why they feel squishier because of that axial unit, presumably. Exactly. Exactly. But I would argue that they work a smidge better um, despite the fact that the Brembo offers the bite and the attack that I actually want, just not the same kind of feel. Braking power, the relative, I would say a more determining factor is the ABS intervention. Um, the ABS on the R7, they're both pretty rudimentary systems. They don't use IMUs, nothing sophisticated like that. It's just wheel speeds and predetermined algorithms. Um, the Yamaha definitely kicks in a lot sooner. So you'll be triggering ABS into those super hard braking zones. The thing is, it's like Streets of Willow doesn't exactly have the hardest braking zones in the world. And it just sort of changes how you approach the situation. To the Yamaha's benefit, we have a lot more engine braking than I mentioned before. So you can use that aspect of the motor to help slow you. So you don't just come, you know, driving into a corner, shut the throttle off, grab the brakes, and then 
yeah, you have to kind of take a lighter, longer approach, which is funny because Yamaha Champions Riding School teaches that exact technique, which, you know, obviously works well with the Yamaha. Uh, so, yeah, and then on the Kawasaki, the ADS still kicks in, but it's not as prominent. Um, there's definitely some lever fluttering and things like that. Uh, I just, you know, it's not the biggest deal. And here's the thing. We're using grippier tires. The Q5 is a very grippy tire. And that is really going to build up your traction over the stock uh, fitment. And, you know, despite the fact that ABS kicks in on both bikes, did it truly slow us down? Uh, probably not much. I think if we had clear track and we we're really, really, really pushing, maybe but i would make that statement towards any of the bikes um so you know that's that's that in a nutshell and you can disable abs if you if you want to you know by pulling fuses uh which i can talk about openly since we're on a closed course so yeah if you know hardcore track riders want to go to that route you can start disabling the systems um you know i think some some better pads steel braided brake lines that would be a benefit for either motorcycle um you know, but again, it's really just that, that dichotomy between the two. It's like every single aspect of these bikes is in opposition to the other, the other, the other thing. And it's pretty interesting because you look at the spec sheet and you're just like, man, these things, they should be kind of in the same realm, but they really approach the sport bike question from radically different uh, points of view. And it's reflected in basically every single aspect of the bike right you know the handling is pretty relative because of their size you know obviously the yamaha feels a little bit more planted versus the kawasaki the front end feels just a little bit better on the on the on the on the kawasaki but you know okay whatever those are probably the closest things and i think if you were to start really fiddling with the suspension and upgrading things then i i think that conversation would probably just go out the window so, um, because then you're working on geometry and stuff like that, but you know, everything else, it's just, it's so interesting to me that these bikes are, are, are just that different. And it's, we keep saying it, we said it in the story about 37,000 times, I said it here, at least another 37,000 times, but you know, it really is, you know, a stark contrast between the two. And, and it's an exciting time because you look at the, the middleweight sport bike class and things are changing. You know, the ZX4R was not an expected motorcycle. We've been told for years and years and years from different man Japanese manufacturers that the 400 class will never come back. It's just too costly, you know, whatever reason. And, you know, I don't think anyone expected the YZF R7 to just show up and replace the R6 either, but it did. And here we are. And so... The rules are kind of going out the window and i think it's an exciting time because i feel like we're kind of getting back to basics a little bit and i think in the end i think that's what we're talking about here you know the kawasaki really delivers on that you know old school classic inline four feel and puts it in a package that i think a lot of riders can get used to um its chassis is nimble it's accessible it's very comfortable arguably a little bit more street friendly in terms of the ergonomics, whereas the Yamaha really leans into that true super sport riding position and riding experience in terms of just fit. 
overall. And we also got to remember that that bike is super narrow because it's a parallel twin engine powered bike. The thing is narrow, 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 narrow. It's kind of tall, narrow. It's It almost reminds me of like an old school L-twin sport bike, you know, something of that ilk. You know what I mean? And in that sense, you know, its engine comes to you a little bit easier. The torque is definitely uh, a user-friendly trait that I think a lot of riders can enjoy just regardless of skill level. It doesn't even matter. And then you get that conventional super sport feel. So at the end of the day, you know, that's what you get with these two motorcycles. And they're sub 10 grand. Now, of course, we did flash the Kawasaki, and this is for track use only. We never rode it on the street. Would never dream of doing so either. And if you say so, you are a liar. Lies, sir. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's this was a, a pretty pretty awesome test to do just because things are things kind of shook out the way they shook out. So that's where we're at. Yeah. Sounds great. They both sound sound like they've got their individual, you know, characteristics that are that are attractive. And, you know, it's just going to be down to individual choice. But but they're both really great bikes by the sound of it. Yeah. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate your insight and all your hard work. Uh, it's a, a fascinating, uh, fascinating to hear about both of these bikes. Thank you so much. In our product snippet this week, I chat with TJ Adams about the new Cortec Light gloves. Essentially, Cortec has utilized a new type of material that is both super thin, yet it's also tough, and it's perfectly suited to lightweight riding gloves. I hear you've been impressed by these new light gloves from Cortec. Yeah, actually, I, I really have. I, I've uh, I've really enjoyed wearing them and, and using them. But is there anything different about them from the usual technical gloves? Because you've got a lot of experience with different gloves. Is there anything different about these? Yeah, yeah. I've got a box full of gloves that I've collected over the years. And, and yeah, there is something different about these. And I have to say that I've been really impressed. The, the big difference is, is they're ultra lightweight. So they're amazingly comfortable to wear. They're easy to put on and take off. And yet, despite being so lightweight, they're also, you know, pretty protective too. But really, I, you know, the big selling point for me is they've got ultimate grip, feel and feedback. And and I like that when I'm riding. Okay, well, that sounds interesting. But how are these gloves able to be that thin? I mean, they are really thin and yet they're also protective. Well, uh, they're made from a new material called AX Suede Connect. It's a very strong material. So although it's thin, it's also abrasion resistant and very strong. So Cortec made these light gloves in three variations. There's the basic light gloves that are made from just 0.55 millimeters of this AX Suede Connect. And incidentally, that material is also compatible with touchscreens. So if you need to stop and tap your phone or your GPS, you don't have to take your gloves off. That's so useful. I'm often stuck in that position where I need to fiddle with my phone and it's nerve wracking enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you parked in the curb and you're having to tap your phone. So, yeah, yeah, it's good. It's useful. You've mentioned these gloves come in three variations, three different types. 
Yes. Um, as I mentioned, the thinnest and the lightest are the Cortec light gloves. And those are really good summer gloves. Obviously, they won't keep your hands very warm. So if you need that, there is also the Cortec Windstop. And that has an extra layer of material that just keeps the, the wind off. So it will keep your hands slightly warmer. The warmest ones are the Cortec Insulite gloves. And those use a slightly thicker AX Suede Connect palm, as well as adding uh, Prima Loft insulation in the glove. So it definitely keeps, I mean, these aren't winter gloves, but they will definitely keep your hands a little warmer. Is there anything else that's protective about these gloves? Well, yes, you, they also have flexible TPR knuckle armor as well. So there is, you know, a certain amount of, of protection for, you know, impact protection as well as abrasion protection. Right. So they have that hard feel over the knuckle area. Sure. Yeah. Why also are you so impressed by these gloves? You've been raving about them. And uh, OK, I mean, I'm impressed that there's a new material that's been invented in this day and age. But why also are you so impressed? Well, yeah, it's just because they're so thin and light. I mean, because it literally I mean, uh, I do a lot of riding. I enjoy the canyons and I ride at a decent pace. So gloves are not just about protection for me. It's also about feel at the controls and getting feedback from the front end of the motorcycle. So, of course, you know, the comfort is great. And I like the feeling of wearing thin gloves, but also knowing that there's some protection there as well. Cortec isn't trying to replace people's technical gloves. Technical gloves have full protection um, that, you know, track day guys and, and sport riders and so on are going to want. What they're trying to do is persuade people who don't use gloves at all, or perhaps they just use, I don't know, generic work gloves or golf gloves or something that are non-moto designed, and they're really not up to the job. So they're saying, just use these because they will offer you protection. And, you know, you don't have to give up your technical gloves, but these definitely are, are good, especially around town or urban riding, you know, if you're just, you know, riding off somewhere local. Hats off to Cortec for designing actually a new fabric. That is incredible. And so I'm, I'm guessing they're going to be expensive. <laughs> actually, not at all. Um, the Cortec light gloves are priced at $35. The Windstock gloves are $40. And the Insulite, the warmest gloves, are $45. So all of them are under 50 bucks for a pair. So there's really no excuse not to be wearing something and to make sure that you're comfortable and protected as well. Incidentally, they also come with a four year warranty, so they're clearly designed to last. As I said, I've been really impressed. These gloves are perfect for local rides, and I also enjoyed them last month on a tour around Tuscany. So they were ideal for that, too. In our second segment, TJ Adams has a fun chat with an influencer that she recently met on the Kawasaki Eliminator launch in California. Aya Lolwut on Instagram is a motorcycle enthusiast through and through. Aya is a software engineer for a healthcare provider and she also models, sometimes with a motorcycle, sometimes without. Aya is a busy lady and seems to split her time between riding, modeling, riding, working and apparently writing some more so we were out riding together and you're a really good rider i love the way you do everything that is expected that's what you want when there are a few of you on the road you don't <laughs> want anything sudden to happen 
Yeah, that's so, true. Uh, we got to write together. That was such a cool way to meet you and spend time with you. Is riding together for a couple hours on new motorcycles. That was that was super awesome. It was, wasn't it? It was <laughs> a lot of fun as well. Yeah, I felt super special to be invited to that. Uh, I think it's kind of more of a new thing for companies to invite like a influencer type person to a press launch like that. Um, so I thought it was so I felt like honored to be among all these amazing writers and uh, professionals who who do this, who know so much about motorcycles. And um, I am just an enthusiast. I I mean, I got into motorcycles. Uh, it's hard to pinpoint one thing because it seems like many things all at once just came together for for me to be riding motorcycles um all my life i've grown up um in a family where um defying gender norms was just like an encouraged and cool thing to do like my dad for example is a he is a professional ballet dancer and my mom's a lawyer and studies air and space law and is is awesome my brothers all dance and um and I was allowed to be interested in like motorcycles and cars and um, whatever whatever made sense to me, even if it wasn't like a gender norm, for example. So um, I think that having been raised like that um, prepared me to go all in on motorcycles. Also um, in college, I was very frugal. I didn't have a lot of money to spend. Um, so a car wasn't an option for me um for transportation and it turns out motorcycles are a lot cheaper than cars because you don't have to pay for parking gas is a lot cheaper usually <laughs> and um if you buy secondhand like I did then and you can wrench a little bit then you have a lot more options so that's how I that's how my journey with motorcycles began and since then it's all just been passion and uh and just hype that's gone along with it for I guess the past six or seven years that I've been writing yeah it's interesting you were saying about influencers because you are the way ahead certainly for you know getting the word out about anything these days um the social media is king and you you've really embraced that and 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 made that work but um, it was more interesting as I got to know you and had a bit of a chat that you do work on your bikes as well. You say you have a bit of a, you can do a bit of a wrench. I see you do, you know, your services and things. So what? let's start with what was your first motorcycle? I mean, did you sort of just go for the cheapest thing you could afford or? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's my favorite question. I love, I love talking about my first motorcycle because it is also still my main motorcycle. It's like, my my main my main ride uh i started on a ducati monster 2002 it's a 750 and i bought it secondhand it was crazy because all along my first bike was supposed to be a ktm duke 390 it had abs it was definitely like equipped with for safety a lot more than uh than a old monster that you don't know the history of and uh my <laughs> my dad was especially pushing for the the ktm dick 390 so that's what i thought my first bike was going to be and i watched all the youtube videos and um did all the research on that bike but 
Um, I have a friend who introduced me to motorcycles and he, he just saw it on the marketplace, shared it with me and made it happen. So I, I jumped on the opportunity because it was probably a third of what I was going to be spending on like a, on a, on a KTM. And, uh, and I, I really just love the look of it too. I it's love at first sight. It's yeah. often the way, well, I think always the way that motorcycles are purchased with the heart. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. That my monster was purchased with my heart for sure. Um, and I haven't always been into, uh, wrenching and working on my own bikes, but having an old monster forced me to be able to do my own maintenance, to be able to, um, customize the bike in the way that I wanted to and in a way that it made it feel like my bike um and this this friend who introduced me to or helped me learn how to ride and introduced me to motorcycles he's now my husband and so I always have him have him around uh which is great because he's the best mechanic I know and being around him has made me a good mechanic as well because if I mess anything up he can fix it <laughs> so yeah so I've always had yeah I've always had a backup uh where I can really try anything that I wanted to with as far as you know wrenching um knowing that I couldn't mess anything up too bad and you've got the assurance he can check it over and uh just yes. make sure it's safe that's that's what yes it's very important mm -hmm. yeah I was wondering if you'd learned from friends and family or uh, there's so much on YouTube these days. People can really just punch in anything and copy and have a go. I mean, you're not always guaranteed you're going to get great advice, but there's a lot of it out there these days. Yeah, YouTube is a great resource. It is, for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have a good YouTube channel. I mean, I was glancing at that, and this is how I found out this little bit about you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I tried to... <laughs> From all the YouTube videos I watched, I think I try to make a couple myself that might help people in the in the future. Yeah, I mean you're on the you're a motorcycle enthusiast, as you say, but obviously the the modeling is a big part of your life, and some of your YouTube videos are on that subject as well, how to pose and how to approach your subject, um, which is really you know really useful for people who are who are wanting to do what you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, I think I just think it's so fun. And again, it's like a creative outlet for me to as silly as it sounds like posing with my motorcycle. I feel like that's creating like taking being around creative people, photographers and and uh, people who produce content. I just think is so inspiring for me. And, and writing is so much fun, but also creating is so much fun. Yeah, I did notice you were really inquisitive. I saw you were, like chatting with various members who are t team people who are <laughs> around there on the Kawasaki day and sort of gleaning bits of information. Mm -hmm. I'm always I'm always trying to learn learn more and I and also in the back of my head I also know that I'll have other people asking me questions so I need to I need to uh, gather as much information and knowledge as I can. Yes, yeah. I mean, having that information on your bike, to work on your own bike obviously makes it, I think you have a better understanding for when you ride. Um, once you know how a bike is meant to, a motorcycle is meant to work. And does your husband, well, obviously he rides. Mm -hmm, he rides. He, uh, he, um, 
he took me out on a date very early on and it wasn't our first date but he took me out on his motorcycle he was riding a ducati monster 900 and yeah riding on the back of that was was something that solidified it for me i was like this i wanted i want this feeling whenever like all the time (laughs) um and yeah so so we both we both love motorcycles which is a lot of fun to share that passion so you've been invited on various um jobs that you've done photographic work and um mm-hmm. uh, well videoing and and all that sort of thing what's been the most unusual thing that you've been asked to do i thought i saw that you were at the bonneville salt flats <laughs> oh man uh so yeah i think riding motorcycles and modeling has given me a lot of really cool opportunities to do all kinds of things. Um, I think one of the most interesting uh, experiences I had, (laughs) um, and you mentioned the Bonneville Salt Flats. It was at the the Bonneville Salt Flats. Um, I was filming with a crew who nobody on the crew rode motorcycles, and uh, but we were filming with me on a bike and then and then another car and I guess they wanted to do some action shots uh some some cool scenes with me versus a car uh, they had video and photo going and a drone and it was it was really fun crew however because they didn't none of them had experience riding motorcycles uh <laughs> they didn't realize that some of the things that they were asking me to do were a little bit crazy <laughs> and uh, dangerous <laughs> wild and and I was totally flattered that they thought I could do all these crazy stunts <laughs> basically on my motorcycle. Um, and I just had to tell them like, oh, you know, actually I can't go full speed towards a car and turn last minute on the salt flats on this bike. Um, <laughs> but I think that would be really cool. Maybe you can edit it to look like I did that. <laughs> so I heard um, somebody say, just go as fast as you can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just go as fast as you can. Um, that was <laughs> they weren't thinking about whether you could stop, <laughs> right? And how bumpy right. it was. Totally, yeah. Um, at the salt flats, there are kind of two sections. There's the salt flats, and then there's a dedicated speedway where you've seen all of the iconic um, world speed records set. Mm-hmm. So the speedways all flattened out and it's very smooth and that's why people can go so fast but the rest of the salt flats are very bumpy and they have all they have all kinds of crevices and cracks and salt bunches and uh for some of the filming I've I've done I've done filming on both but on on the cracks you can catch some speed wobble even at 60 miles an hour it's it's right yeah and was it slippery um no I suppose you weren't really making turns you weren't sort of riding on roads so you're not going to notice that too much yeah exactly yeah (laughs) you're just going flat out in a straight line do you know what top speed you reached um on the on the the salt (laughs) speedway on the salt yeah I I would go up to 60 and then catch a little bit of like speed wobble and so uh, I don't don't think I could have gone much faster than that. Yeah, it was yeah. throwing you around a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any problems sort of switching bike to bike when you turn up? You're obviously working for different manufacturers. Um, they just presume you can leap on and ride any motorcycle. 
so I've been writing for about six, seven years. The first five-ish years, I had ridden nothing but my own bike. My 2002 Monster 750. That's the... I've put thousands of miles on that bike and I was so confident and knew exactly how to control that bike. Like when, when I was riding that bike, we become came one and I could, I just felt very confident on that bike. It wasn't until about until 2022 when I made, which was just last year, done a couple shoots for motorcycle brands um, or, or gear brands that required me to ride other motorcycles. And I was like, wow, I get on a different bike and I feel like I have to learn how to ride again. This is crazy. Like all the muscle memory that I had on my own bike would had to be a little bit tweaked on different motorcycles. And I actually thought that was so fun. And I made it a new year's resolution in 2022 to ride 22 new to me motorcycles. And amazingly, I was able to do that. Um, 22 new to me motorcycles. <laughs> That's a big number. Oh yeah. 22. <laughs> it's a lot of bikes, um, a lot of different bikes that I got to ride and, and doing that actually helped me. I feel like become a better rider because I'm not relying on just one set of one setup that I'm so familiar with. I'm, I'm expanding that to, um, that knowledge or the familiarity across many different kinds of motorcycles and so now yeah even last last friday bike night somebody i was going around asking people what their dream bike was and somebody had uh this huge harley bagger and uh was like yeah go for a ride and i actually i did i hopped on his bike and and took it for a ride and while i was telling him um he's asking me what kind of if i've ridden his his bike um a road glide before and I was like actually you know Harley people don't really just offer their bikes up for people to ride they keep them close and he was like yes and that's how I am with my bikes too but he he was just like go go for a ride and so and I don't think a year or two ago I would have been able to just hop on a a bigger bike a heavier bike uh with front forward controls and you know higher bars and been able to confidently ride but um i think i'm by now i'm almost at like 60 different bikes that i've ridden and i i feel like i can i can do that now <laughs> have you ever done any um films you know lots of uh companies need extras to ride yeah i have done one extra work uh where i I didn't do any like stunts, but I guess I was called a stunt double because I had a helmet on and was in the edit going to look like the main actress uh, um, or one of the characters at least. I've done that. Um, I live out here in Utah, so there, there's not as much going on with filming as there might be in like LA, I feel like. Um, but if there are ever opportunities where I can ride a motorcycle, um, and you know be on a creative set then I'm all in <laughs> and how do you um get your bookings are you um with an agency or do you put yourself out and I mean obviously you're you're good at um promoting yourself well I mean luckily the the motorcycle community is very it starts to become small like we start to there's there's many of us but 
because we're so tightly knit and it's such a like strong community I feel like um I start to I start to connect to more pieces of the web and and um just just being part of the motorcycle community I feel like uh gets me a lot of opportunities um and as you mentioned my my uh social platform I'm in, in front of a lot of people's eyes so I love when people think of me when they need something motor related but I do also have an agency like a local agency since I do modeling not just motorcycle modeling but all kinds of um like apparel and things like that so what's the bike night that you go on where is that locally yeah locally we have a bike night it's uh every Friday night we all meet up at like nine o'clock um, as long as the weather is good and just get together in a parking lot and just chat it up. And then an hour or two later, people will split off onto their own little rides independently. Nothing super organized, but it's a it's just a great way for people in the area to get together and uh, make friends and talk motorcycles. It's I, I really like in my area um, the the culture motorcycle culture here people are, don't take themselves too seriously and are very friendly and um I mean it's like that in most places but I, I really enjoy it it's motorcycle people I think mm-hmm. yes <laughs> yeah so how do the roads in Utah compare to um riding around Oceanside in California which is where I met you yeah that that was so fun to ride with you in Oceanside. I I think we got to do a good variety of a little canyon type riding and uh, a lot of uh, in the city, which also was fun for me. Yes, um, yes. By the beach. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I love that. Uh, in Utah, where I live, I live outside of the canyon. And uh, I, I feel like the main difference is that it's just a little bit more open and wide open, more space, therefore a little bit more speed. Um, people drive very fast here um, and even through the canyons uh, the canyon just right outside of where I live is uh, is windy but also still high speed like all the corners you don't take slower than 70 miles an hour it's just quite sweeping sweeping roads yeah sweeping roads and uh, I love I love riding in Utah although we do have you know seasons where unlike Oceanside where it's going to stay great weather all year we do experience our seasons so in the winter it's going to get cold here we'll have snow on the roads um but in the summer if it's ever too hot in the valley we can just ride on up towards higher elevation and pick our own temperature (laughs) so that's I love that kind I love that nice aspect of riding in Utah yeah that's good good to have that freedom to be able to just beat the weather Mm -hmm. (laughs) So does it get so cold that you have to sort of put your motorcycle away and uh, not ride for a couple of months? Yeah, that would be a smart thing to do. Uh, but because I have Caleb with me, my husband, he's an enabler and also loves motorcycles. We we often travel south a couple hours, still within Utah. But uh, if we just go a couple hours south, it's a lot warmer and we can do some desert riding in the in the winter. That's amazing. It's that's what I love about the United States. The variety. You can just ride a few hours and you get something different. Happening. Yeah, it's amazing. Have you seen much of America? I've I've gone on road trips, but in cars. 
I would love to do longer distances on my motorcycle. I've that's I think that's next for me. I've the longest I've done in a day, I think is like 400 miles. And uh, I love hearing stories about people who go on tour and they'll go they'll they'll do 400 miles before noon. Yeah, that's probably because they've been camping and they have to get up early because they're so uncomfortable. <laughs> so they get a lot of miles in. <laughs> it's the usual way with touring. <laughs> but a great way to see. Sounds places. like adventure. Yes. We, oh, yeah. Adventure, seeing new places, experiencing the country. That sounds so great. Yes. Yeah. So what's next for you? Are you sort of um, going to go down the software route or the modeling route? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I've been... I've been um, posed with that question often. It's like, well, what are you going to do? But I, I'm i pretty confident. I like doing both. <laughs> I think going full-time modeling um, or going full-time software, I don't think either of those will fulfill me um, in, in the way that doing both does. So uh, I, like I said, I just love the, like the focus and the, the intellectual challenge that I get in software where and but I love the it's a different kind of focus on riding motorcycles but the and also the creativity that comes with modeling and and riding so yeah and and everything you're creating sort of content wise that's yet another aspect really isn't it that is enjoyable doing that sort of thing well it is for me not for everybody necessarily yeah I love it I I love one thing I love about creating um for Instagram at least for my for social media is um it's gotten me into the habit of capturing moments and capturing things that I want to remember and to share um I love that I can just I can go back a couple years and see all the fun experiences I had and um remember all the people that I've got to meet and experience uh things with and uh, yeah I, I remember like at the on the ride a couple of weeks ago with you, you would stop to take a selfie. And I was like, I love that. That's so happy to me. <laughs> you'll have that picture and you'll always remember it now. We took a selfie together too. And yeah, I love it. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. It's quite a laugh trying to get yourself and a motorcycle into the shot. <laughs> so um, you still love and ride that monster. Do you think you'll keep that forever or do you think you'll switch for something else one day? It's a, quite a big bike. I mean, it's a big bike for a first bike. I think what's been so fun about riding that bike is I've never considered a, a next owner for it. Does that make sense? Like, yes. sometimes when you have a motorcycle, um, you're thinking about the next owner and you're like, oh, I better not do that because the value will depreciate or uh, or the next owner might not like this and it's not reversible no for my monster I there is no next owner I'm the only owner for the rest of its life so I've gotten to you know I wouldn't take my other bikes onto the salt flats really as eagerly as I did my own bike because I'm gonna deal with all the damage that happens to happens to that bike I'm not gonna pass it on to somebody else um so the Ducati monster <laughs> took one for the team yes yes <laughs> Um, but that bike is 100% to ride and to enjoy and to make mine. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't I can't see myself getting rid of it. If I do, it's 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 going to be broken into parts and put onto my next bike. <laughs> so what other bikes have you got? I didn't realize you had other bikes as well. I see you riding lots of bikes. but uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. You can't tell if it's mine or if I just picked it up at bike night. Could be. Who knows? Yes. 
um <laughs> I have um I mainly ride street so I have a lot of street motorcycles and I do a little bit of track my track bike is an R3 I have uh, a couple Ducatis right now I have the 1198 which um is a 2011 I, I have a monster s4rs a monster s1000 um s2r1000 and actually a couple, uh monster 900 so i have a few monsters i i think caleb and i yeah we that's our comfort zone that's what we're most familiar with um and then i have a couple dirt bikes for the winter when we go south a little bit to ride in you know moab area st george area oh yes beautiful land. totally and then i we have i think and it, the monster the bikes besides my monster um and the r3 we kind of just rotate through um those those aren't super permanent um but it's i think we end up with a lot of motorcycles because we have a garage and can fix fix up motorcycles so if we come across like a good deal you know something that needs a little love then then it's hard to pass up on on those oh i have xr right now too um <laughs> yeah i think I, I i got the xr because for one it was tall enough for my dad to ride when he comes and visits but also i wanted to experience riding a bigger bike so yeah there's just there's so many bikes because there's so many purposes there's different re reasons that uh and different uh yeah, different purposes that bikes can um, fulfill. So it's, it's fun. Yes. And different moves. You wake up one day and, and fancy, you know, a fast, straight ride. And then other times you want to go off-road or go twisty. Yeah, or something more comfortable. Oh, I, I forgot to mention on R3 that we have solely for the purpose of helping other girls learn how to ride so I got an r3 that has like this frame sliders on it it's a 2019 so it has like and it's a little bit more modern than like my monster for example and has uh, abs and I get to help my friends learn how to ride e just even like a session before they go take a M msf course um so that's that's been fun to have too yeah, that's brilliant that you're encouraging other other mm -hmm. ladies to ride. It's a growing, uh, definitely a growing number of ladies who are riding in the USA. Um, and that's that's fantastic to see. I belong to a few Facebook groups and uh, it's, there's quite a lot going on. Yeah, I had I had no idea that there was uh, an impression that I guess not a lot of girls ride. I, I kind of picked that up from um from Instagram when people were surprised to see a girl on a bike but I know so many amazing like women who ride and not all of the women make it their main personality trait like I do I feel like the women who ride do like 18 other awesome things and so you'd never know that they rode a motorcycle <laughs> but they're the girls who ride are everywhere they're out there so have you got any funny stories have you sort of turned up for a job and they ask you to do something completely different or you crash the bike and they can't take any more photographs <laughs> oh my gosh that's it I forgot about that yeah I did um I was shooting for a jewelry company like a motorcycle 
jewelry company um in salt lake for one morning got up early just as the sun was breaking was riding up up to my shoot and on my way there i got rear-ended at a traffic light and yeah it was it was a little scary because it was crazy because i like as soon as it happened i kind of was watching the car approach me and thinking like they're gonna slow down right um but as it happened uh it felt familiar because I have had so many nightmares about being rear-ended and then it actually happened. And I was like, wow, I've been here before. But um, luckily I was, I was just fine. I, since I saw the the car coming at me, I, I was prepared and not totally taken by surprise. I jumped off my bike and although I ended up like in the middle of the intersection and the, my bike tipped over um, and slid for a while, only one side of the bike was damaged the other side was totally fine and so and my bike continued to run so I was able to after after kind of relaxing for a little bit and shaking off all the yeah, you must have been yeah shaken. I, I was yeah, my knees were literally shaking and but after I calmed down a little bit I was able to just proceed and we continued with the shoot but we only shot one side of the motorcycle so it's I don't think anyone else will notice but when <laughs> I see those photos I'm just thinking oh if you saw the other side of the bike it would be kind of silly when <laughs> <laughs> you get back home yeah <laughs> Dear husband, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a little yeah. glitch today. <laughs> we have a project this weekend. <laughs> nice so that you can do all that sort of thing yourself. That's really good to yeah, hear. It's nice. It gives a little bit more feeling of independence and freedom, having the ability to work on work on your own bike. Mm. And do you have to work hard at sort of keeping fit, keeping yourself trim, um, because obviously you're you're kind of open to to having to be out there at any moment oh yeah I mean yeah you're totally right like riding motorcycles is like a physical activity like especially um riding off road uh but I yeah I enjoy all aspects of of health uh with with working out going to the gym staying healthy and active um being on motorcycles gets me outside and active as well it's it all just feeds into each other I feel like yeah it's just a, a lifestyle isn't it really and the which track did you ride at I am in Utah very close to the Utah Motorsport Campus formerly known as Miller Motorsport Speedway I think it used to be called yeah yeah it's I love that track it's very wide and beautiful that's surrounded by mountains I, I love it nice so you've you've um you take the monster there or do you take a, a different bike for the track for the track I take an r3 um oh, yes you said that yeah I I enjoy riding the r3 on the track and have you taken any lessons or are you still sort of self-teaching I am I would definitely going to be taking lessons I haven't yet um the track sessions so far have been uh really good for me to get over like the initial fear and like intimidation factor of being at the track you know I needed to I needed to first warm up mentally before I could take on any um any lessons so that's that's definitely next for me yeah it's a great great experience because you are you've got no bother of being rear-ended <laughs> there's yeah. no traffic well I guess there is a slim <laughs> chance if you're with other people <laughs> but unlikely mm -hmm. um 
and you don't have traffic and turnings and everything you can really focus on your technique yeah yeah it's just motorcycles only and we have a lot of really talented and enthusiastic and just great riders out probably out of any track but I I really felt welcome there people were were so helpful and giving me pointers and helping me um helping me out even on my first couple track days yeah, there's a lot to take in, isn't it? It's, it's mm-hmm. definitely a different experience. And yeah. you know, it's not everybody is able to get to a track, but I'd say if you mm-hmm. can, if you can sort of save up hard and uh, go and do um, like the Yamaha Champ Riding School, mm-hmm. that's a fantastic experience. I did that. It was absolutely amazing. And you have the really best type, the best riders there teaching you. Did you do that recently? Yes, I did that. Um probably about four months ago now that's fairly recently I mean the year's flown yeah yeah wow <laughs> yes in Las Vegas oh and, that's great uh, there are lots of people there who are currently out racing so they really yeah. do know what they're talking about oh I love that so if people want to follow you <laughs> your Aya Aya which A-Y-A lol wood am I saying that correctly yep that's that's my Instagram handle that I chose uh <laughs> Aya is is my name, A-Y-A, and then I added the L-O-L, well, what? Um, it's just, I just think it's a silly, like, internet reaction to life. I think a lot of things you can kind of approach with, like, L-O-L, what? Like, I'm, I don't know, just, like, laughing, not assuming I know anything ever. I'm always asking what, um, and uh, kind of light and playful. So that's, that's, and also Aya happens to be a super common name in Japan and all of the, all the different kind of Aya Moto or Aya, whatever have all been taken. So, um, and I also do more than just Moto, although I, I am very, um, I do mostly Moto, but I wanted the, the chance to also post modeling things on there too. So yeah, I just, Aya Eloa, Aya is my, is my internet um social name my my actual name is Aya Dykeville uh Dykeville is a Dutch name I'm half I'm half Dutch my dad is born and raised in the Netherlands I was born in the Netherlands as well uh in Amsterdam and so yeah my name Aya Dykeville kind of shows my who I am half Japanese half Dutch um and now I'm here in the in the USA America. And do you live do your parents live near you? Are you near your parents? Yes. We we grew up in I grew up uh, largely in uh Mississippi, but as soon as I moved out um and the older siblings moved out for college, my family moved my parents moved to New York. So they're I think they're both definitely city people, you know, from Tokyo and Amsterdam. And uh, we're just waiting for the family to get smaller to <laughs> move over to New York. Yes. Yeah. Another stunning place. I'm, ha- I'm just having fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it's all about. <laughs> well, thanks very much. And hopefully we'll uh, we'll type again and have another ride together. I would love that. Yes. I Let's keep in touch. Let's ride again. Let's... Um, out let's follow each other on our journeys with motorcycles <laughs> yeah yeah that's lovely thank you so much for joining us and uh, thank you we'll catch up soon yeah i love spending time with you take care bye bye bye